Is the team engaged? Are there good systems in place? Um, or is it kind of all stuck together with duct tape? Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 52, and today's guest is Fan Fai. Fan is an angel investor and co-founder of Hedgehog, an e-commerce holding company that buys direct-to-consumer brands. Fan and his team have identified an underserved buy-side market for those brands that have gained some traction, but have not yet been able to grow to the levels they'd like to. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Fan Bai. Fan is the founder and chairperson of Blank Label, a tailored menswear business, and is also the co-founder and CEO of Hedgehog, an e-commerce holding company that buys direct-to-consumer brands. He's also an angel investor in consumer brands, such as Branch Furniture, Brightland, California Cowboy, and 10 other brands. Fan, welcome to the show. Mark, it's great to be with you. Uh, super excited. I'm uh, uh, very grateful to join the other stellar guests that you've uh, had on the show. So thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, thankfully, there are people like yourself and, and the other guests that have wanted to, to share their story uh, and, and help some people that are early in their career and, and even some people that are more senior in their career continue to learn a little bit. So let's jump kind of into your background. You know, it's pretty interesting. And, you know, one of the things we do on the show is like to give everybody a, a sense of where the guests, um, you know, kind of have come from and how perhaps, you know, their upbringing uh, gave some some light, might shed some light in what they do today. So tell us about your your early career. I'm, I'm still relatively early in my career. So just for uh, context, I've, you know, in my mid thirties, I've really only known uh, kind of e-commerce um, and mostly um, operating um, as a kind of founder. So my, yeah, my background is I was born in Shanghai, uh, grew up in Sydney, Australia, so kind of had a pretty typical immigrant experience, um, which I think is a part of my identity still. And uh, seeing my family or living through my family kind of, frankly, escaping, um, you know, communist China and, you know, looking for, you know, uh, pursuing their own capitalist pursuits. And my parents were small business owners in, in, in Sydney and kind of seeing the benefits of that uh, as, a, as a big part of who I am today. And so planted that seed of, you know, wanting to work for yourself and working hard and being able to kind of have the agency of working for yourself and, you know, uh, being able to you know, reap the rewards of that um, as well. So I'd always wanted to kind of start my own business and, and out of college kind of was, you know, this is 2008, 2009, the you know, entrepreneurship was just starting on college campuses. 
so this was like a few years after Facebook and, um, and this was in Boston at the time, was inspired. And I was like, always had an interest in apparel and clothing. And so started Blank Label, my first business, which is a custom, uh, custom menswear business. Operated that for, you know, we, we started online, uh, started eventually opening stores uh, and operated that business. Uh, well, that business has been around for 12, 13 years now. And so, uh, and only a couple of years ago, kind of transitioned out of that business. It's still by run by, the business is still run, it's but around, it's run by a management team. And now, and now with Hedgehog, which I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about. Yeah. So there's, there's blank label. And then there's another business, Black Lapel. Um, and when I was, you know, doing my prep for this, you know, I see, you know, chairperson of blank label, black lapel, that just totally threw me. I was totally confused. It was two yeah. <laughs> so similar uh, names. What is black lapel? Confusing externally, it's sometimes confusing internally. Uh, we started a business called blank label, custom men's clothing. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, there was another custom men's clothing business called black lapel that started. And the quick funny story is when they launched, a, you know, a couple of friends of mine, like, you know, sent it over and said, "Hey, what's going on? Is this is this you guys or like like?" Um, and I was like, "No, it's not us." And one friend even said, um, "Hey, you should like send them a cease and desist. This is too similar sounding." And we've always been have you know we have an abundance mentality of always you know happy to be friendly with our peers in the space, and so reached out to them. And but in, in this case, I want you know I reached out to them and said, "Congrats for launching." But in my head, I was like. Hey, I'm a little bit peeved, but the the gentleman, the founder, Warren, was so nice that, you know, after the conversation, I was like, well, I can't not like this guy. He's such a nice guy. And so that was, you know, eight, nine years ago. And so we stayed in touch. You know, fast forward, custom menswear gets incredibly impaired during COVID. Three or four years ago, you and I may have been, in, been wearing dress shirts, uh, possibly a sports jacket for this call instead of two polo shirts for the listeners but so incredibly impaired and basically you know he and i were crying on each other's shoulders and the long and short of it is we decided to buy them and and that's the story of blank label and black lapel okay got it let's switch gears a little bit to you know the concept of investing you know you talked about entrepreneurship you know the investing landscape has lots of terminology you know there's angel investors there's seed investors then there are you know rounds series a series b series c so maybe just give us you know a, a minute or two on the landscape of investing um, and we'll talk about where you play in it uh, in a minute but give us that perspective of of the different kinds of investors out there? High level, there are um, two types of investors and I'd really break it down into kind of angels defined as non-institutional and then institutional investors that have their own investors called LPs. And the, the biggest difference is, at least in my mind, the, the, angel, the term angel, as far as I understand, it de derives from Broadway angels. So, you know, uh, decades ago when a Broadway show was getting launched, it was, you know, an angel willing to fund the production. And it was really a passion project as much as a financial return. And I, and I think about startup angel investing is a similar, you know, it's, hey, people that have backed us, we're looking to pay it forward. And it's, you know, we want to see these things exist. We want to give a backpack to passionate driven entrepreneurs looking to build something in the world. And we're definitely looking for, you know, a productive outcome. Um, and given that we're at the earliest stage, the, you know, return profile can be quite attractive. But we are not, it's kind of, we don't have a fiduciary responsibility up the chain to our own investors, uh, both, you know, kind of vis-a-vis -vis an institutional investor. So that's kind of how we think about it. And then, like I said, angels are earlier stage, 
you know, whether you want to call that a seed round or friends and family or, and then once you get into the series A, series B, et cetera, then you kind of get into the institutional investors that are typically writing the, you know, five to $50 million checks. Right. And, you know, when you think about the, the current, you know, climate, you know, we're talking, you know, uh, we're in the middle of February 2022. What are you seeing and uh, in in prices for companies that you're looking at? Um, has the market, you know, continued to be on fire as it was, you know, over these last couple of years? Are you seeing seeing it flatten out? What's your perspective at the moment? Uh, two, two factors. One, which is, and again, mid-Feb, you'd put even consumer products, startups, bucketed in with tech and tech's been, you know, largely written down in the last three months in the public markets. And so I think that there is a potentially impact for some drag, which I'll talk about in a second. And then the second is just like consumer products, uh, brands impacting in the BC ecosystem, which uh, in the last two years uh, being a little bit uh, out of favor of us, let's say four or five years ago. And so on, on the first part of you know, things like Casper and Peloton, other large consumer brands that have been so impaired uh, in the public markets, and that's starting to trickle down, I think our friends up the up market in terms of the Series B, Series C, $100 million brands that are thinking about going public in the next 12 to 18 months, they're starting to feel the pain of, hey, they're, uh, they're getting mocked down a little bit, but it hasn't trickled to the early stages yet, not in kind of this, the seed in Series A. There's still so much private capital that's yet to be deployed or needs to be deployed in the next couple of years. So I think, again, you know, knock on wood for us uh, being in that space, but we haven't seen early stages prices come down and you know, we'll go out to market in a, in a few months um, ourselves. And uh, the feedback that we've gotten is it's, it's still very, very hot for, for, for the kind of you know, top decile opportunities. It's still very, very hot. So, but I will say on the second part in terms of VCs, finding consumer brands a little bit out of favor. We've heard that a lot from all of our consumer products friends. Well, I should say, you know, our VC friends that did invest in consumer products five, six years ago when there was a, when it was pretty sexy to do so. And there was this thesis that you could build, you know, um, billion dollar consumer brands. And the reality is only maybe half a dozen or so ended up playing out. I think now that's kind of gone out of favor and they've gone back to their, you know, more traditional tech investing, you know, 90% gross margin businesses instead of you know, 50, 60% gross margin businesses that have physical products that are harder to scale. And so I think that's become more challenging. You, again, have to be a really, really uh, have top tier metrics as a consumer brand to kind of attract more of those VC dollars. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, you and I have talked a little bit. I, I do some, you know, small, um, I'm not even sure that I'd characterize it as angel, but, you know, uh, some small investing. In, and I like the early stage companies because it helps me learn. It helps me, you know, pay it forward, as you talked about before. Um, but I look at even the investments that I have made, the ones that um, have, you know, performed better over these last, you know, three years or so seem to be the ones that are technology, you know, SaaS kinds of platforms, you know, as opposed to the, you know, the smaller early stage consumer goods, you know, they've got a product or two or three, um, and that's what they're trying to sell. So um, even for somebody like me, I could feel that kind of shift, you know, happening. So let's talk about Hedgehog. Tell us what Hedgehog is. Through the blank label and lapel experience that I, I mentioned earlier, that was really the inspiration for Hedgehog. So I had operated blank label for about 10 years. We 
where like most of, you know, a lot of the consumer products folks that listen to this podcast, you know, uh, we wanted to build a, you know, $100 million revenue, uh, large uh, consumer products business. And that's really hard to do. Um, and we built a, you know, nice size business, um, but hadn't fully broken out yet. You know, we had six stores, you know, 35 employees, but hadn't fully broken out yet. And, and the, the challenge was like, we were always looking to grow top line revenue. Uh, and so we, you know, we were less conscious about EBITDA. And so when we started to have some of these, you know, exit conversations or explore these exit conversations, uh, they were like, you're, you're too small for strategics. You're not like at that 15 or $20 million revenue that like a strategic can start to even be bothered dealing with. And, but you're also not, you know, gushing an EBITDA. So you're kind of stuck in this messy middle and there are really no buys of that. And we're like, hang on a second. This is like, there's still remnants of a good business here that, you know, we have a lot of repeat customers, good amount of organic traffic. You know, it's a going concern business. And it's something, I don't know if it's worth $100,000, $500,000, a million dollars, $5 million, but it's not worth nothing. And moreover, like a lot of our consumer products, founder friends ran their businesses in a similar way. Like, so what happens to all of these? So, So that was part one. And then part two was when we did do the black lapel, when we did buy black lapel, one of the things that we identified was like, you have an inventory planner, we have an inventory planner. Like you have an email marketer, we have an email marketer. Like you have a photographer, we have a photographer. Like, and so naturally we thought there were, there were opportunities to combine, you know, do a shared services model. And that, that played out. So a couple of quarters later, we're like, oh, you know, this is actually working. And so the fact that, you know, so again, highlighting those two things, that there was no buy side for subscale, not yet profitable brands, but we thought that there was still value. And that we were able to actually unlock some of that value. And we're like, we should just do this as a standalone entity uh, outside of, you know, focusing on custom niche, focusing on a much broader category, starting with apparel, but we'll go into other categories. And so, so that was the thesis. And um, yeah, it's been a blast. You know, when I look at, you know, some of these smaller businesses and and I've had lots of conversations with, you know, early stage folks, how do you decide when you look at the business, whether it's a business or it's the hobby of the founder. So we've definitely seen a lot of passion projects, but the, the, the reality is often, you know, a passion project or a hobby can turn into quite a good business. Um, so, so our criteria is that like, we are looking for a high quality business and that's across two lenses. One, which is, you know, we're looking for quality revenue and looking for a going concern business. So the quality revenue is really like, what is the non-paid revenue? Um, does it have a repeat trail? Does it have any organic or referral traffic? Or is the business completely ad-driven? Um, I think completely ad-driven businesses are really hard to make work. And because just, you know, ad businesses, pricing changes, it's an auction marketplace, Facebook CPMs go up and you're, you know, you're out of business. So, so it's, it can work a while, but it's, it's hard to sustain. So we're looking for, is there a lot of quality revenue here? And the, the second part, is it going concerned business? Like, is the team engaged? Are there good systems in place? Um, or is it kind of all stuck together with duct tape? And and if there is a quality business and they have good processes, but it's not yet profitable because it's trying to grow too quickly or there's kind of a lack of internal expertise with planning or P&L management, these are things that we can fix. But yeah, that kind of quality revenue is, is, is really the main market that we're looking for. 
And so when you think about, you know, acquiring a, a business at this time, uh, is it generally with the idea that the founder or whomever has been running um, will continue to do that? And, you know, I, I've been involved in a, quite a few multi brand, uh, both catalog and, and digital businesses, you know, over time. And there's been, you know, this, this age old discussion of it, should it be decentralized or centralized? And if the model is centralized, it's usually some form of a hybrid centralization model. So as you think about how to leverage, right, because you're building a leverage play, how do you think about what the structure should be? The founders typically move on, but we generally want team members to come over. And so the founders move on because they want to move on. Like that that's usually the first conversation. And it's a, a founder that's been at it for, so we generally only buy brands that are aged of five years plus, um, but our average age is probably eight or nine years. Uh, so, so the brand's been around for a while and the founders tired. You know, we deal with fatigued founders often. And so they're looking for a good home for the brand, but they're looking to hand over the keys. And then in terms of operations, um, yes. So we run a very centralized model and then effectively have pods. Um, so across our portfolio, we've got kind of, you know, premium women's wear pod. We've got, you know, a subscription business pod. We've got kind of a lifestyle apparel pod and we'll have kind of design and marketing within those pods and then some horizontal functions kind of across, you know, whether that's, you know, accounting and legal and compliance or, you know, a people function. Uh, but yeah, it, it is, it is, you know, fairly centralized. When you look at a business that might be, you know, out there for seven or eight or nine years and has not been able to achieve, you know, the kind of scale that one might want, is there not a, an underlying message there that maybe there's not a business there? Uh, that's a great question. It depends on kind of, what the expectations are in terms of what is a what is a good business and what what is a business that's kind of worth working on. So we generally don't buy businesses that are sub three million dollars in revenue. Um, but north of that, like if it's a five, seven, ten million dollar business, the founder might. In often cases, you know, the founder's like, I've been at this for eight years. I don't know that I want to keep running a five to six million dollar revenue business, especially if it's kind of EBITDA neutral or like, you know, lose a little bit of money and we've raised a couple of rounds or, but in our case, we're like, Hey, if we can get this business to, from, you know, six to seven and a half to eight and do it profitably and, you know, have an $8 million business doing a million and a half, $2 million of EBITDA, that's actually a pretty great outcome. If we can, you know, stack together a couple of dozen of those, uh, it definitely needs to have some small element of scale, again, north of $3 million, ideally north of $5 million. But we, yeah, again, we would be quite happy with that business, even if others wouldn't. We don't need it to be a $25 million, $50 million revenue business. There are other people that want to you know, have that prerequisite, you know, other institutional players or you know, low mid market private equity firms. But again, that's why where we think there's the white space. Like We are often the only bidder. It's a proprietary relationship. It's deep empathy with the founder. And it's the operating uh, model that can run a you know six million dollar business and run a lot of them together that you know we think is our edge. The uh, as you think about as you're talking, more questions keep coming up in my uh, in my head. Uh, when you think about uh, these businesses, are you looking for synergy? You know, across the businesses from a 
customer perspective, you know, so that, you know, Mark Friedman, you know, may ultimately, you know, be a customer of one brand that you buy, but now because you're, you're compiling synergistic businesses, you can now sell more things to me. Synergies across a couple of areas. So customer persona is definitely one of them. Like, like, and our pods kind of follows the pods follow that structure loosely. And then second of all, like we just learn a ton. We, we learn a ton from brands that we don't buy, but we learn a, a heap ton from the ones that we do buy. And uh, we'd like to think that we, you know, are giving a lot of expertise. We're also getting a lot from each brand and like, oh, they've got a like nifty tactic around, you know, this or that thing. It's also, you know, where we often try to bring the talent that's coming with the brand and, and elevate that to, you know, a Holdco level. But yeah, customer persona, yeah, taking the customer persona, introducing it to more products is, uh, is absolutely a core part of the strategy. And then Finally, in terms of synergies, it's also um, overlapping wholesale accounts. And so I'd say 30 to 40% of our brands do some wholesale. And so, yeah, often we're getting introduced to good wholesale doors. Um, that So it's as much cross-pollinating customers uh, as it is cross-pollinating wholesale doors. And, and the, some of the brands, and, and maybe before we, we talk about, I was going to talk about Marketplace and, and Amazon. Can you mention any of the names of, of brands that you own today? Yeah, so we've got a few brands in uh, in, in women's wear. So uh, Rec Room, Francis Austin, Ogmoser. And again, these are all subscale brands. So I wouldn't expect that any of the listeners have heard of them. But then in uh, Lifestyle, we've got kind of Wire, uh, Fayette Chill, uh, Bridge and Burn. And then we've got a couple of subscription businesses as well, uh, which will come online in the next month or so. Okay. And all of this is under the Hedgehog umbrella. So if listeners want to uh, understand which brands are part of Hedgehog, they can go to your site and see it. Uh, is, is it all up there? The, the site needs a, an update. It, it's, it's a uh, funny conversation internally where there are two slightly different views. We've got a very muted site at the moment, but um, yes, presumably it will be uh, updated soon. Okay. So folks, don't go to Hedgehog reach out to me. I'll get you contact information for Fan, and he'll tell you what brands are there. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Let's go back to marketplace. Are you looking at businesses that have as their core competency, you know, direct to consumer, either through wholesale you mentioned or uh, on their uh, online business, but that have some component of marketplace as opposed to businesses that are predominantly driven by marketplace? We are not a uh, marketplace first business. We are definitely a direct to consumer first business. Uh, and for that matter, we are not a retail first or a wholesale first business either. <laughs> As you would well know, and you know, had uh, other guests talk about on this podcast, like the marketplace aggregation bonanza is uh, competitive. And, and so we definitely don't look to go ahead on there. Similar to wholesale, although maybe slightly higher percentage, but yeah, like, you know, maybe 40 to 50% of our brands will have done some wholesale. And so we're looking to, uh, so do marketplace, and uh, uh, when we'll obviously look to continue that, and we'll try to bring our other brands uh, to marketplace where it makes sense. And so, yeah, like at some scale, we think that you know, D2C is probably still the large majority of the revenue. That's where we like to play. It's um, 
we love owning that customer and owning that full LTV trail. LTV is a very important part of our D2C thesis. And mentioned earlier, kind of owning that customer then across different uh, brands as well. So owning that customer data is really, really important. Uh, so we'll always be a DTC first business, but presumably at some scale, you know, marketplace and wholesale, you know, be 15 to 20% of revenue each. And then, you know, large majority being DTC. Right. You know, uh, there's so many headwinds for consumer businesses these days, whether it be supply chain, cost of uh, acquiring new customers because of uh, cost going up with Google and Facebook and, and other digital platforms. How are you guys dealing with these headwinds? We definitely experienced some of that pain ourselves, but I would say, to be honest, it's been a net benefit because we are a buyer of brands with some flavor of distress that it's created probably accelerated deal flow. And in terms of how we deal it, so we are category focused, um, at least to start. So you know, we expect our first, let's call it 25 million in revenue to be in apparel. And so that makes our supply chain a little bit easier to manage. Uh, we have both onshore and offshore manufacturing vendors that we work with. Um, again, so that can kind of load balance. We have quite a few premium and luxury brands. So air freight is very viable. So, so we've been able to manage the supply chain situation moderately well. And then in terms of iOS 14 and increasing ad prices, again, I would say that because we have a portfolio approach and because our holding company is predominantly at this stage, a large buyer, you know, we're, we're, like we think there's a big buy side opportunity. The aggregate kind of holding company can grow pretty aggressively, even if our, you know, organic growth is only, you know, 20, 20% a year. And so to hit a 20% marker of a high quality business, is much more achievable than trying to grow it at, you know, 30, 50, you know, 70% a year. You mentioned a few times, we, um, what does, uh, who, who, who makes up the we in Hedgehog? Yeah, so we've got what a dozen plus, maybe 12, 15 FTEs at this point. Management team is a head of product, you know, kind of overseeing supply chain, design, planning, a head of marketing that is, you know, ad buying, affiliate, email, uh, and then a head of ops, which is customer experience, retail, because we do have a couple of brands with their own standalone retail people, fulfillment. Um, so, we got functional heads in, in those three. And then I spend most of my time talking with founders, um, you, know, I, you know, talking with a handful of founders. Yeah, probably talking to about 10 founders a week at, at, at this rate. Uh, yeah, just walking them through the exit process. Sometimes they're like, hey, I'm not sure I'm interested in selling, but I like, you know, got introduced to you or, and I want to learn more about it because I've been running a brand for five to 10 years. And I've like, I feel like I need to pop my head up and like learn, learn like what my options are. And so it's often a conversation like that, or it's a, Hey, like, you know, we need to, we're actively thinking about a, like a solution and uh, we actively need to look for a solution. And um, so, yeah, but that's where I spend most of my time. Where does the deal flow come from? You know, you're not, are you, you're not out there advertising that, Hey, you're looking to, to buy companies. So it's gotta be some networking, but where does it really mostly come from? You know, our, our key belief is that there's no buy side for sub scale, not yet profitable consumer brands. And so, you know, there's a lot of white space there. If we were, if our key belief was we wanted to buy profitable Amazon businesses, you know, uh, it would be much, much harder. So, so, so that means that like through our network of the founding team collectively having about, you know, a dozen plus years of e-commerce experience each, that we have other DTC founders, agency friends, consumer products, investors that 
know that this is a problem. And so when they come across something, they're, you know, we're really one of the only places they can send it to. The, to answer your question more directly, where do the most deals come from? It is from other founders. And so it's other founders in our network that, you know, say, hey, you know, because founders are usually the first person that you tell over a beer or, you know, a catch up and like, yeah, look, it's been like, we got hit really hard last year. Yeah, it's been a grind. And um, I'm thinking about, you know, next steps. And, and you know, oftentimes there's, you know, this proverbial playbook, you know, that's kind of a, you know, a word, you know, obviously in my podcast, the marketing playbook, but, you know, do you have a playbook that you've now, you know, established, I've seen, you know, these portfolio businesses and, you know, they want to bring on these you know, new businesses, but it's almost like they're recreating the wheel each time. And it's a fairly inefficient process to onboard a, a business. How are you dealing with that? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we definitely do have playbooks for really each of our functional heads. Uh, you know, we've got a, like a, a due diligence checklist uh, and we kind of in, interchange this, you know, uh, checklist and, and playbooks, but, you know, with this due diligence checklist of like what's in our buy box, like, and, and we're learning over time, how to improve that. And then, it, you know, there's a kind of trend transition checklist. Hey, here are all the things that are must haves pre-closed that we don't want to get anything. You know, we want to, hit the ground running usually we're working even with their team on their business pre-close just to make sure that everything's buttoned up and rocking and rolling we've got this growth marketing playbook you know kind of uh, three rings the first ring being uh the low-hanging fruit around you know, um, improving you know, ad structuring and testing email signups and flows um, and that's kind of the, the lowest risk best principles the second ring like once we feel like we've saturated that you know around marketplace and then marketplace affiliate, you know, non-core paid social. Uh, and then the third ring kind of being wholesale influencer, kind of other experimental um, kind of higher risk or, you know, and so, yeah, we definitely have kind of systems and um, from, again, all the things that we've each, you know, individually learned over the last, you know, 12 to 15 years, specifically within, you know, D to C e-commerce. All right. How, how are you funded uh, in order to support the acquisition of these businesses? Yeah. So we've, um, you know, been inspired by the, our peers in the marketplace aggregation world and kind of, you know, so, so we're funded like a traditional startup as opposed to a, a, a fund model. Um, and um, so done the, you know, pre-seed seed um, and we'll go out for an A um later this year and but yeah funded like a you know, at the whole co level like a startup got it and for you as the ceo of this business what are your biggest challenges that you face personally you know day in day out pacing is something we spend a lot of time thinking about um pacing in terms of going too fast or too slow you know we think that it's a huge opportunity we want to buy every brand that we talk to it's a problem we're deeply passionate about solving which is you know, because we were in that position ourselves, we deeply understand like you put all this work in and now you're a little bit too small for strategics, not quite profitable enough for a financial sponsor. You're totally stuck. Like it's the pain that I, that I still like understand very deeply. And so, and you're staring in the mirror being like, but I know there's a good business here. Like why can't anyone else see it? So yeah, we're, we're very passionate about the buy side. And so always want to go faster there, but you know, we actually need to operate these businesses and like, in some cases, you know, need to implement our playbooks, and uh, and then it's about scaling an operating team, and you want to have the right people on the bus, and and 
it's growing quickly enough that we're basically a different organization every quarter or two. Um, so pacing is something that making sure that everyone's aligned on what we're trying to do and uh, and the speed at which we're doing it is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Well, that's uh, good information. Good stuff. Thank you for uh, all sharing so much uh, information with us. So we're getting down to the end of the show. We like to do this uh, two-minute drill. We've got seven questions for you. Uh, one or two-word answers. You ready? Absolutely. Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Yeah, the, I, I don't. I don't know if this is cheating, but uh, there there are a few brands that come to mind, um, and these are all legacy brands. But you know, have to love the likes of you know a Patagonia or a Nike or a Starbucks. Starbucks like multi-decade still feel like you know 30 40 years on they're kind of still in their prime yeah that, that that derives a lot of inspiration building lasting businesses that's for sure the favorite app on your phone uh twitter okay all right we'll be watching uh looking for your tweets the last website other than amazon that you shopped from it's a, a friend's brand but it's a company called italic that is kind of doing a a membership model factory direct similar to Costco, but for premium goods. Ah, interesting. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. Um, I'm always, I'm always trying to become more economically rational. And uh, when, what I mean by that is I'm the type of person that's like, I'm still thrifty enough that like, Hey, I'll spend like, you know, 30 minutes on trying to save $70, but then, you know, I'll not think about spending, you know, $600 on. And, um, so yeah, always looking to be more economically rational. Okay. That's a first economically rational. Okay. Uh, a charitable organization that you're passionate about. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that there's a ton more that, um, I can do here. And we really think about it, uh, as a family, but, um, both my wife and I are involved in a local school, which is a nonprofit and, uh, and try to spend time there and even longer term education is probably the area that I'm most passionate about. Good. And if you had one superpower, what would it be? I'd like to think that I'm patient and have a long-term outlook. Uh, so I want to be at this for a while. And yeah, so long-term thinking. And other than your family, what's your most prized possession? Probably related to the last question, uh, which is my health, uh, which has definitely had some ebbs and flows um, with the chaos of running a startup. But yeah, it's something I try to be conscious about. Okay. Where can people reach out to you on social media? Uh, lots of good information uh, today, and maybe they'll want to reach out to you and try try and sell their company to you. Yeah. Uh, so we're at thehedgehogcompany.com. Uh, you can easily find me on LinkedIn and Twitter if you just search my name, fan by. Yeah, always happy to help. Like, you know, that, that's our general view, which is there isn't very much education around this topic, around uh, exiting your consumer brand. And, and so we, you know, we publish some content, including on social media, but yeah, always just happy to be helpful and point folks in the right direction. Often case, it's not us, right? Like often case, it's like, Hey, we're a really profitable business. We're like, great. You should like talk to, you know, these three brokers that we've had good experiences with, or we're a really high growth, um, high scale brand. And again, that's probably not a fit for us. And here are a couple of bankers that we know that we, we like and trust. And so be yeah, always happy to chat. Okay, great. Fan, this was uh, really interesting. I love what you're doing. I uh, hope we can uh, stay in contact uh, going in the future. Absolutely, Mark. Thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Fan Buy for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, 
even with a market that's been on fire for years, there's still so much cash available to be put to work. If you're involved with a business that needs cash to grow, or even if you're looking to cash out, you've not missed the boat. For the right business, there's still available capital to be raised. We did hear fans speak to the fact that consumer brands might not be looked upon as favorably as technology companies, but don't give up if you're focused on a consumer brand. Number two, a company like Hedgehog is looking to unlock the value in a business that for whatever reason, current management or the founders were not able to do. Portfolio companies make a lot of sense. The concept of leveraging shared resources, but many have tried and failed. At the end of the day, it's about the brands you bring together and the execution. And number three, businesses that are completely ad-driven are really tough to sustain. You must be able to develop quality revenue from other sources, whether it be from building your brand and gaining traction in organic and direct load traffic, or from wholesale or retail channels. But you cannot only rely on what you spend with Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.